mil. This is hell. Dan, what the hell were you playing before the show started? It's an aggressively strange album by an artist named Voice Actor. It's like a four-hour album. I've been jamming it out a lot. <laughs> really? Is this the first time you've listened to it all the way through, or have you listened to it no, I listened to it walking around in this cold weather, getting apple-cheeked. <laughs> you are looking very apple-cheeked this morning. That's me. Yeah, very cute. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people. This is hell, and is that ever evident when you consider the way in which the media and those in government equate property crime with violent crime that does actual physical harm and isn't just the destruction or loss of an inanimate object. They insist that we respond in the exact same way to both property and violent crime, and that is with force, with cops and more cops, maybe more diverse cops, but still more cops. And as we are learning, or learning again for the umpteenth time, from the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, and as we discussed earlier this week, it's not who make up the ranks of the police that's the problem. The problem is policing itself. The demand by protesters of defunding the police following the police murder of George Floyd from less than two years ago has faced an intense backlash across the country with big city mayors who back then ran on reforming the police and being later elected on that campaign promise. And then after taking office, actually expanding the police instead of defunding them. That fight over defunding the police goes on, however, in, of all places, Burlington, Vermont. Activists there were successful in actually defunding the police, but after local and national media stoked fears of an alleged crime wave, the program to defund and come up with alternatives to policing is now under threat. In a few minutes, we'll return to the defund the police debate, which is still taking place. Who knew? When we speak with journalist Katya Schwenk, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Crime Wave That Wasn't Burlington Tried Defunding the Police, then came the backlash. Katya is originally from Burlington, Vermont, but is now based in Phoenix, Arizona, where she is covering cops and prosecutors in the desert as a staff writer at Phoenix New Times. She also reports on far-right politics. Katya has worked as a breaking news correspondent in Rabat, Morocco, for Morocco World News, a government technology reporter for Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., and a local reporter in Vermont at VT Digger. Her work has appeared in The Intercept, Business Insider, The American Prospect, Truthout, Independent, obviously in The Baffler, and other places as well. Katya's on Twitter at K-T-Y-S-C-H-W-N-K. Katya Schwenk without the vowels. K-T-Y-S-C-H-W-N-K. Find all of her writing at katyaschwenk.com. That's S-C-H-W-E-N-K. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far? It's been good. I visited some friends, and um, they have a hairless cat. Got oh, to, really? Got to touch that for the first time. Because of uh, somebody has allergies? I guess so. I don't think it really helps. It was crusted in dander. <laughs> really? It's weird when you're touching a hairless cat. They're very warm. You know, you can feel every little 
tension in their turkey neck style bodies. <laughs> it's a different situation. It feels more honest somehow. Is it kind of gross? It's a little gross, but I dug it. This was the sweetest cat, you know, jumped right up on my lap. My cats aren't lap cats, so it was a thrill for me. Yeah, my cats aren't lap cats either. If you fall asleep, they'll try to smother you with their bodies on your face. Mine just slaps my face awake in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> so next week, I am getting a crown on one of my teeth uh, the afternoon before our Patreon podcast. My question to you, Dan, is, I'm not too sure if you have any familiarity with this or not, will I be able to do Patreon and actually read a monologue the day after someone screws a post into my jaw to hold my new crown? Maybe, but don't force it. Mm. If it feels bad, you gotta be patient with yourself, Chuck. You have to have sympathy for yourself. If you would be nice to somebody else, you should be that nice to you. That is very sweet. Did you put that on a bumper sticker? Yeah, I'm glad to. And then we'll put this is hell right at the bottom. The softer side of this is hell. uh, More important than any of that, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell, we want to know, what culture war battle should this is hell pile onto to get popular? Get some likes. How do you uh, like the new read sheets I'm providing producers? They're great. I think they're really neat. I like the font. It's the default. It looks like your printer has enough toner. It does. Five out of five. The, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is how swag you want. The t-shirt, the tote bag, face covering, face mask, coffee mug, trucker's cap. Winner, beanie, or toque if you prefer. The guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of 20 of uh, interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, This Is Hell is completely listener supported. And without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or during today's show for the last hour of the show. If you want to email us, you got to email us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's uh, Jeff doing during the Moment of Truth today? I tell you, this week Jeff explores ways to dissolve world leadership. Mm, I'm betting carbolic acid is involved. Yeah. More people want to work with us here on This Is Hell. We've mentioned over the last few weeks that with producers Sebastian Vupper moving to Michigan and producer Alex Jerry, scheduled to have left the show a year ago to have more time for family and far better paying work. But uh, he has stuck around to make certain we kept going during my many, many illnesses in the past 12 months. And we deeply appreciate Alex for that. And uh, listeners are inquiring about our positions as part-time in-person producers here in our Chicago studio and those positions involving remote work. Under the subject line, volunteer, with a question mark, Hugh writes to us saying, Chuck, I have been given your contact information because of the natural fit of my very left-of-center leanings and your broadcasts and that you are looking for a three-hour-per-week volunteer commitment. I don't know the details, but am certain of my political views and disenchantment with current affairs as they now exist. Don't take my certainty as inflexible in regards to changing my views when given new information. Please send me the job description and whatever follow-up information that you need. Hugh. Okay, I'm now more curious about who gave Hugh our contact information than I am about Hugh. In either case, sure, we'll send a job description, but we'd really like listeners to join us on the show. But, you know, that's cool. If you don't listen to the show, it's not required. 
that would, would be appreciated. We got another email uh, with volunteer in the subject line. This one from Gene C., who writes, Hi, Chuck. I heard on the radio show that you need some help if one can commit to three hours a week. I can. I am retired. I live near your offices. I have no radio experience. I have a journalism degree. Note the pithy short sentences. I enjoy the show and like to help. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the volunteers do? Please. Thanks. Gene. First, Gene, Hugh, not volunteers. We believe in a living wage, and as we realize that Fight for 15 is now obsolete, we need more and more support from our listening audience in order to make certain that our producers get a living wage. Second, great to hear, Gene, that you are a listener to the show. Third, them sentences of yours sure are pithy. Finally, we are looking for people who can be here at our studios on the second floor of 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, above a bar called Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S, one day a week, Monday through Thursday, for approximately three hours, beginning at 9.30 in the morning. Producers run the board during the show, as Dan does, which is a lot easier to learn than you think. They put guests and correspondents on air, and during the week they confirm firm with guests we booked in order to help them with details about being on the show, like what number to call or how to connect on other platforms. We are also uh, looking for those who can do remote work in our updating of our website to get as many of our shows from our 26 plus year archives posted online at our site, thisishell.com. If you are interested in either the in-person studio uh, producer position or the remote work, all you have to do is email me at chuck at thisishell.com and I'll provide you with details. Dan will be sharing more of, coming up, Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll go to Burlington, Vermont to see what's going on with the defund the police campaign. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth and we'll tell you what's happening next week here on this is hell. Noam Chomsky called this is hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly Gnome's gone insane. This is hell, the home of Bernie Sanders. Burlington, Vermont, has found itself in the middle of the defund the police debate. Yes, a Vermont town of less than 45,000 people, that's over 80% white, is in the middle of the defund the police debate. Why Burlington? Here to help us understand the current state of the debate and figure out why Burlington, journalist Katya Schwenk wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Crime Wave That Wasn't. Burlington tried defunding the police, then came the backlash. Welcome to This Is Hell, Katya. Good morning. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for being on our show because this is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a really long time, the way in which uh, crime statistics can be manipulated to basically say anything. You start by writing that uh, the vote to slash Burlington, Vermont's police force was held at two in the morning. It was June 30th, 2020, a month and five days after the murder of George Floyd. Over the preceding weeks, uh, demands for change in Vermont's most populous city had swelled. Bureaucrats were in tears at budget meetings and the police chief was firing off increasingly panicked memos. So Burlington is known as a pretty progressive town politically. How typical is this for Burlington city politicians and leadership 
to respond to national events. Is this what you would expect from Burlington officials in response to these kinds of political debates and contestations? Yeah, I would say so. I think Burlington, you know, dating back to when Bernie Sanders was mayor, has a pretty robust history of, you know, left-wing politicians trying to um, engage on the national stage, perhaps more than you would expect from a small town. Um, I think that there is, you know, a sense from the critics of people, of the progressives in Burlington city politics, that they're always trying to cater to these national, these national events. Um, so, I mean, plus, I think that there is really robust grassroots organizing um, that exists in Burlington um, that can has often forced uh, politicians to take action in the way that they did uh, in 2020. And you point out, though, that the mayor of Burlington currently is from the Democratic Party, and that is kind of seen as the right wing party in Burlington. Has there been a change in the tone of uh, the politics within leadership in Burlington since the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed in Burlington? Um, Has there been a change? Yeah, I I mean, I think that there has, um, you know, like I write, I think you have to understand sort of how liberal Burlington is as a city. I mean, fairly similar to, I think, many college towns um, of its size. You know, Burlington city politics is split between the Democrats and the progressives. Um, I don't believe that there is a Republican currently holding elected office on the city council. Um, so Democrats really are seen as the right wing party within Burlington. Um, and I think that they were put under a lot of pressure in June 2020 uh, to, you know, push forward reforms. Um, and so I, I do think that there was this initial shift in tone um, among more conservative politicians in Burlington at that time um, because of, you know, the overwhelming demands, people camped out in the, uh, in the parks, people protesting every day. Um, but I do think over the last two years, in response to sort of an initial slate of police reforms that were pushed through um, in June, you have seen... I guess how what I would describe as a little bit of a reactionary turn um, from Burlington's Democratic uh, leadership, um, the mayor, the police chief, who once paid a lot of lip service to reform, um, who now I, I think are turning a little bit more tough on crime um, in their posture uh, towards these issues. So there's definitely been an interesting, an interesting um, trajectory over the last few years in Burlington. And not just in Burlington, across the country. Here in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot ran on a campaign of defunding the police, of reforming the police. She ran on a campaign against a police training center in the West Garfield Park neighborhood here in Chicago, which, which is a black, brown, and uh, lower, in, lower income community. But then when she took office, all of a sudden she turned and she actually expanded the funding for the police and in, expanded the funding for this new police training center. To you, what explains that turn away from the defunding the police campaign, even when it was an electoral victory for some politicians? Yeah, I think that is such an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think I think it was um, at that moment, it seemed um, urgent to adopt that as an electoral strategy, like you said, to win elections. And once you actually take power, um, the calculus changes, I think, for a lot of these politicians. Um, but I would also point to, 
what I sort of see, and I see this in Burlington, I think, like you said, these are trends that we're seeing um, mirrored in a lot of cities across the country. Um, but what I saw in Burlington was um, the, you know, business class, um, business owners downtown who are powerful, um, landlords, um, property owners, uh, you know, the police union, you see these powerful entities that feel very threatened, um, that have a lot of sway in city politics. Uh, and I think, you know, partly due to the pressure campaign um, from those kinds of actors, it was, you know, it was that it was that influence, I think, that caused some of the shifts that I saw um, in how politicians handled these issues, even when I think and I think it's still true in Burlington that um, the cuts, you know, are the you know police reforms were are broadly very popular. Um, you know, people are still winning elections, supporting you know, defund the police, quote unquote, kind of the kinds of reforms, um, but, you know, pretty radical kinds of police reforms. Um, but I think that at a point when you have such um, such pressure from, you know, business elites and people like that, um, you know, the electoral calculus changes. So when it comes to police reform of any kind in Burlington or elsewhere, do you think that there is a disconnect from what's best for business and what's best for the people. Is that what the defund the police campaign is revealing maybe to the public, that there is a dis- that what's best for the people or what's best for business isn't necessarily what's best for the people? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you can see it very clearly um, in, in the way this debate has played out in Burlington, where a lot of the criticism of um, the police reforms has focused on a very small strip in downtown Burlington, where some of the, you know, it's like a big tourist area, lots of businesses here. Um, there, you know, and at the same time, there's a lot of homelessness that can be visible in this part of town. Um, and so I think a lot of, many of the business owners in this area have been some of the most vocal um, about, you know, getting back to more tough on crime policing policies, things like that. Um, and I think you can see in how this has played out. And again, this is true in other cities as well. Um, you know, the focus is really on, um, or often is on, you know, reducing petty thefts, property kinds of crimes, um, but also just ensuring that poverty and homelessness is not visible. And, and I think that's something that police um, do very well uh, is moving, displacing people out of areas like that. And I think that, you know, at times that is what business owners would like to see. Um, and so, yeah, in that sense, I think, um, I think that, you know, you have this huge disconnect um, between the priorities, the pri- what, what business owners often want from public safety policies um, and what we could think of as public safety policies that are broadly, you know, good for the people, whatever that means. And is the city for the residents, the people of the city, or is the city for tourists and tourism? So that's another thing that uh, it should be considered as well. Absolutely. And, and you write that activists arguing uh, the Burlington Police Department was, as police departments in the United States tend to be, overstaffed and consuming too much of the city's resources, not to mention brutalizing people in the streets, demanded a 30% reduction in uniformed police officers. The city council voted 9-3 to in favor. The force would be reduced via attrition by last month. The force had uh, contracted, had contracted by 
33%. You mentioned overstaffed and consuming too many of the city's resources. During the defund the police debate, most of it was around a kind of retribution for all the uh, racialized police violence that the law, that law enforcement had engaged in. What do we miss in the debate over defund the police when we are focused on the idea that the law enforcement might be overstaffed and consuming too much of a city's resources? Um, what do we miss in the debate when we focus on only that the, versus only the ra- mm. racialized violence rather than the amount of resources that cities put into overstaffed uh, police forces? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the two are very interconnected. Um, you know, a police department with more resources um, is going to have more power to engage in that kind of violence. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know, police departments in the United States have seen their budgets. Um, increase every year and swell with very little, um, very little pushback, very little oversight. I mean, you saw that even in the moment when defund the police, and, and I think it is much less so now, but there was a moment where that was, you know, broadly popular. People were calling out for that. Um, and very few cities did re- like change how they were distributing resources to their police in a meaningful way. Um, even Burlington has restored some of the funds that they originally took from their police back to Back to the department. Um, so, I, I mean, I think a really key part of this issue is sort of acknowledging um, how difficult it actually is to create change um, in how police departments are funded. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge political effort. How difficult do you think it is for the public to accept that the police are? overstaffed and over-resourced when supporters of the police are claiming that any reduction in the police force means less safety and less security. How difficult is it to overcome any fear caused by reductions in the police force, potentially leading to more crime and less public safety? Can can defund the police, or even how can defund the police overcome that fear? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question. I think that is one of the reasons why um, in the wake of one of the biggest protest movements um, in the history of this country, we saw very little actual change to police budgets um, when you when you go back and, and look over the last couple of years. Um, and, I, and I think, yeah, I think that there is a really strong um, media uh, apparatus, if that's a good way to put it, um, that ensures that the very idea of any reduction um, in police officers um, that very idea is directly uh, connected to our ideas of crime. Like I feel, I feel like we can often only understand crime through this lens um, of the police, how many officers there are, how police officers are funded, how many cops there are on the streets. Um, you know, which I think is an incomplete understanding of of what crime is. But I think you know, through a combination of things. I mean, I, my article discusses the role. Um, of the corporate media, um, but you know you have cop television shows. You know this whole sort of cultural understanding of the way that cops and crime interact. Um, and I think you know, given that, it's extremely difficult to overcome that. Um, but you know, I think the, the the fact that defund the police did become um, a rallying cry in in 2020 um, and remains and remains so. Um, you know, I think that is being able to create a new understanding um, of these issues, I think, is the way forward. Um, and I would love to see it 
be more successful than it has been so far. You also point out that the steady thinning of the ranks of the police force in Burlington from 92 officers in 2020 to 61, as well as a $900,000 budget cut, has now been repeated, repurposed over and over again in increasingly panicked tones by the local and national press. What do those panicked tones about defunding the police in Burlington what do those panic tones about the local and national press, national press, what does that reveal about the local and national press when it comes to the rallying cry of defund the police? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, over the last few years, um, Burlington has been the subject of a lot of national media attention, um, you know, both when it, I guess, actually less so when it initially re- cut some of its officers um, which it did by attrition, right? The officers left over a period of time. They didn't immediately depart the force. Um, but over since that time, um, there have been there's been a lot of national media coverage um, of of crime in Burlington um, and this, you know, this idea that you know the New York Times wrote a very long feature on the the idea that bicycle thefts have been increasing in Burlington without the police. Um, you know, Fox News, you know, has written some sensationalized stories about, you know, oh, the city is deteriorating in the wake of cutting their officers. Um, and, I, and I think that this, the coverage is extremely revealing um, in that it, it seems, it seemed to me like the story, a story that they were looking for. Um, very few, I believe, I would argue cities um, made such significant cuts to their officers officer counts, things like that, these sort of, you know, you could call them more structural reforms um, as Burlington did. And I, I think that um, because of the way um, our media often covers crime, they were looking for a story of what happened to crime, you know, in a city that cut money of its officers. Um, but so, so to me, it felt like revealing of, a revealing of the narrative that the media was, was sort of looking to find in Burlington um, much of this coverage does not really include um, include evidence that any of the rise in crime. Well, first, that crime that they say is rising is indeed rising. It's there is a few few types of crime for sure that have increased bicycle thefts. You know, it's there's I have not found solid evidence either way. Um, the media also does not cite evidence that connects you know certain types of certain rises in types of crime to the officer count. So, I mean, to me, it's it's revealing of, you know, the way that these stories are often really not based, these stories we tell about crime and about policing are really not based um, in, in evidence much of the time. Um, they're based in sort of this, again, cultural understanding that we have that, you know, crime is operates in direct proportion to the number of officers we have on, on the streets, which I mean, I don't, I just think that's false. And you mentioned that in a recent alarmist feature on policing in Burlington, the paper of record, again, the New York Times, warns of a growing, sometimes violent problem with crime. The paper is not alone. In December 2021, NBC News published an investigation into the unintended consequences of that decision to defund the police in Burlington, which Fox News adapted into a more blunt headline. 
Vermont city deteriorates after defunding the police. Critics fear racist label for speaking out. In the editorial pages of the Washington Post, Burlington has become the poster child for progressive naivete. And you quote columnist Charles Lane writing in November, justifying his craven call for cities across the country to hire more cops by saying open air drug sales have proliferated. In Burlington. So first of all, have open air drug sales, have they proliferated in Burlington? Is there any evidence to suggest that is taking place? That's a good question. I have not seen any evidence. I, I honestly don't know. You know, a lot of these articles, you know, are pulling from some kinds of statistics. The open air drug sales, I mean, that to me, that is as far as I can tell, completely baseless, which is not to diminish, obviously, you know, the real issues um, with you know, opioids and drug abuse that are do occur in Burlington and everywhere in the country. But I mean, that to me, that that to me is completely baseless, that particular piece. And is there a sense of intimidation from those who want more reforms to the police? Is the city being bullied into reforming as Fox News reports? <laughs> I mean, depends on who you ask, for sure. I mean, I, I think that, sure, the mayor probably felt that the act, you know, activists camping out on on people's lawns and calling for change, maybe he took that as bullying. Um, you know, I, it's, there was definitely pressure on elected officials um, to push through these changes. But I mean, I think after sort of the initial slate of reforms that was passed um, in Burlington in, in June 2020, there has really been gridlock um, when it comes to changes in policing. Um, there has been, you know, at, I think that the the pressure campaign um, worked initially, and for whatever reason, um, it has really not continued to push. The city has not been pushed to um, get through some of these to follow through on their initial promises to reform for reform, um, and to you know continue sort of the agenda that was set um, in June 2020. You also write that uh, Burlington's aesthetics are often at the core of the stories that are told about crime here. The city of 45,000 revived in the 80s from industrial decay strives to be the picture of New England idol. There are cobblestones and Queen Anne-style homes draped with ivy and steaming food stands that sell poutine and maple candies. It sounds great. The New York Times, in its uh, November opus, The Bike Thieves of Burlington, Vermont, intersp- I just can't believe that there's so much attention on bike theft, interspersed photographs of porches strung with crime scene tapes with those of pale sunsets, a flock of geese silhouetted against the evening sky. So is there a sense from the Times reporting that crime is not something that should happen in Burlington? And if there is that kind of sense, what does, again, what does that tell you about this New York Times article when it seems like this is a place that crime should not happen? Yeah, I think that is exactly right. That like underlying that article and a lot of the crime coverage in Burlington, going back decades, I mean, you can find these kinds of crime panicked articles about Burlington and Vermont you know, from years ago, including in the Times, but underlying it is the sense that, yeah, crime should not be happening um, in this sort of beautiful, rural, very white, you know, politically liberal setting. I mean, you it, it's inconceivable um, that the New York Times would write this kind of article about bike thefts, you know, about, you know, different parts of New York City, I would imagine. Um, you know, this is this is the kind of article that could only be written about you know, a white rural 
college town like Burlington that has a particular place um, in our sort of cultural consciousness. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, so yeah, I, I think that is, I think that's exactly sort of the root of the issue of my problem with a lot of this, this media coverage. Um, and of course, crime and violence um, have a long history in Vermont. Um, you know, it's, if you know anything about the history of, you know, um, white settlers in, in the United States, including in Vermont, you know, crime and violence are very much tied to that place like they are everywhere, unfortunately. Um, and, and so, you know, I just, I think it's a faulty premise to begin with. Crime is very American. <laughs> it's very American. <laughs> yes, you exactly. You also cite a 2002 article in The Atlantic by journalist Ron Powers, who wrote about Chelsea, Vermont, a small town about an hour southeast of Burlington. You describe how the year before two teenagers from Chelsea had crossed the river to New Hampshire, talked their way into the home of a stately couple, both professors at Dartmouth College, and then stabbed and killed both of them in their study. Powers was consumed by the surreality of the uh, violence, the new near impossibility of it in a, such a bucolic setting. You quote Powers writing, Americans want to believe in towns like Chelsea. This kind of thing doesn't happen. You add Powers like, uh, uh, Powers like the propagandist who who would follow him attributed a baseless novelty to white rural violence, a new mutation, he called it, in which the murderer's victims tend not to be the denizens of an urban war zone, an urban war zone. I always hate when any when anybody ever compares a low income neighborhood to a war zone or whatever anything happens to a war zone. War is very distinct and awful and we shouldn't diminish how horrible it is by comparing it an urban war zones just bugs me so granted this was 2002 20 years ago 21 now do you think that kind of article could or would be written today given our growing awareness of white privilege and whiteness in general since the killing of george floyd yeah i mean i i'm sure if it were written maybe there would be some tweaks to the language um to make it more you know i mean a sentence like urban war zone you know that to me is clearly um dog whistling um you know based in racism but you know i i, I could see an article like that getting published i think they're um you know i think that true crime stories are deeply popular um I think that, you know, this the idea of crime increasing is something that fascinates people. The idea of crime um, in places that it is not, we are not normalized to the idea of there being crime that we're not that we're not desensitized to um, is something that fascinates people. And so uh, again, I think I think that that is what um, yeah, I think that was the the appeal of that old article. Um, and again, I think it runs through crime writing about Vermont and places like Vermont today, um, where people are people are fascinated by the idea of such horrible violence in places that we've been taught to think um, are not violent, you know, which, again, I, I would disagree with. The Atlantic story by Ron Powers that you cite was headlined The Apocalypse of Adolescence which kind of prepares you for the sensationalism that often accompanies crime stories in the media. Uh, the story also comes with one of those lengthy sub-headlines, which reads, This spring, one of two Vermont teenagers charged with the knifing murder of two Dartmouth College professors will go on trial. The case offers entry to a disturbing subject, acts of lethal violence committed by, 
quote-unquote ordinary teenagers from quote-unquote ordinary communities, those quotes put in place by the uh, headline writer, teenagers who have become detached from civic life, saturated by the mythic violent imagery of popular culture and consumed by the dictates of some private murderous fantasy. This is what you call the baseless novelty, the powers attributed to white rural violence, what he called a new mutation. Again, 20 years ago, but why do you see killings by ordinary people in ordinary towns, er, in ordinary towns caused by being detached from civic life, saturated by the mythic violent of, uh, violence of an imagery of uh, popular culture and consumed by the dictates of some private murderous fan, uh, fantasy? Why do you see all of that as baseless? And what does that say about 2002 when we would see those kinds of things as the driving forces behind heinous crimes committed by, again, ordinary as in white people. Why do you find that that reasoning for the violence is baseless? Hmm, I guess I wouldn't, I don't know if I would argue that that is baseless. Um, I don't know if I would, yeah, so to start with that, I I think that um, what's baseless to me is the idea that this is somehow new. And I think that, I think writing about crime in general often has this air of, you know, for whatever reason in Burlington, um, you see it there's this new rise in crime, crime that would, did not happen before in that article that Powers writes about these teenagers and, and this ki- this kind of killing. Um, there's this idea that this is some, you know, new mutation, He's as he says, um, something that has not happened before and thus speaks to, um, you know, these broader trends. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily disagree with his um, analysis in some ways about why, you know, what led these teenagers to commit those crimes. Um, but I, but I also think that I did not see in that article a real engagement with, um, what we know about, about violence, what we know about what drives people to cause crimes. I think often that much of this crime writing is sort of uninterested in asking those questions, looking at the evidence, um, behind what is driving violence, what is actually causing crime and, and sort of leaving it, um, leaving it more unknown, uh, and, and looking at it from a different kind of lens. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, that's what I would say. And it also, you know, it connotes cultural decay. And so, you know, and that's what is in that kind of cultural decay is leading to heinous, deadly crimes. So that seems to be the narrative that Powers is trying to go with there. Journalist Katya Schwenk is our guest. She wrote the Baffler Magazine article, The Crime Wave, that wasn't. Burlington tried defunding the police, then came the backlash. You write that Vermont is one of the whitest states in the United States, second only to Maine. It claims a particular whiteness, as the geographer Robert Vanderbeck wrote in his 2006 study of race in the state, a whiteness, quote, discursively linked to notions of political liberality. What makes you're from Burlington what makes the whiteness in Vermont unique hmm what a good question (laughs) um yeah I mean I think you know our understanding of Vermont um is really shaped by a lot of these of those cultural figures like I write people like Norman Rockwell Robert Frost um so I I think that there is like to me Vermont is very much the home of the white liberal. Um, and I think there's also a bit of a class, um, there's sort of the affluent white liberal as opposed to, you know, poor white people um, is sort of, you know, not to say that 
poor white people do not exist in Vermont, but that our sort of cultural understanding of Vermont is often focused on sort of affluent white liberals, you know, in the ski towns and fleeing New York City and on all of those things. And so um, I think that, um, and I think that sort of the lack of, the real lack of racial diversity in Vermont combined with, you know, the, the political progressivism um, that exists there and is, is pretty powerful um, in some ways that I find very good. But I think sort of that combination does lead to um, this sort of culture of whiteness that really does not um, reckon with um, its own racism because all of these people, you know, marched in 2020 um, and, and think that they, you know, have thought a lot about race and have moved past, you know, their own prejudices. Um, when in fact they're living in one of the whitest states in the country and really, um, in my opinion, often have not fully reckoned with those kinds of issues. You write of the demands by the group Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, including the cuts were voted through that that's the 30 percent reduction in uniformed officers. Uh, Much of the rest was quickly trapped in a bureaucratic snarl of committees, reports and consultants. The cops left, but nothing took their place. An assessment that was intended to suggest alternatives was delayed for more than a year and then proved decidedly uncreative in scope, critiquing racial disparities in the agency's policing, but recommending that the department partially reverse its cuts and hire more cops, advice the city has been trying to heed. What explains the lack of an alternative? Is a lesson from Burlington that before you defund police, make certain that there is already an alternative in place that the city agrees to put into place when the police are defunded? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would um, go so far to say that that is you know, necessary. I think that there are a lot of people who would argue um, that defunding the police and moving resources out of um, public safety or out, out of policing um, is a inherent good on its own, regardless of whether there is something that takes fills that void. Um, I would though say in Burlington, the you know, and, and there were plans, sort of vague plans for you know for you know a new system of public safety quote unquote i think that was sort of the language that was being used there were these vague plans that were passed at the same time that the city decided to reduce um, their officer count but there was really not a strong enough action plan or as i see it sort of a strong enough vision to really carry them through or enact them um, afterwards and so um and i think that became a huge political liability because it became very easy um, for sort of the police union and the police chief and the mayor to, you know, fearmonger about the fact that we have fewer officers and there's no one taking their place. There is no other system. You know, we don't have social workers responding to these calls. And if you have a, if you're, you're a victim of a crime, maybe no one's going to show up at your house to help you. You know, that sort of rhetoric was quickly used. Um, when there is no easy alternative. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that politically um, it was not, it was pretty detrimental, I think, um, to those police reforms for there not to have been an alternative system to quickly fill the place of the police. Um, but I would say um, also that, you know, I think, um, I think that they're the part of the problem in Burlington was that as soon as those cuts were passed, the police 
chief and the mayor um, and much of the sort of right-leaning section of the city council um, was pretty, was very much fixated on restoring the police to their full capacity, um, which created a lot of issues and slowdowns in getting other reforms passed. So I think part of it was sort of a gridlock um, that was created proactively um, by the police in Burlington. We were talking about the backlash earlier against defund the police. Do you think that there was going to be a backlash against the mayor or the city council members who are trying to get the police back into Burlington? Yeah, I mean, from from some, I think. Um, I think that the next mayoral election will give us a better sense of, you know, what that backlash might mean electorally. Um, but I see Burlington as pretty divided. I think there's a a large part of the city and the county um, that's still supportive of the reforms that has not felt that the cuts have made a difference in their lives. And there's an, another part of this, you know, another sort of side of the city that's, you know, very much in support of the mayor and his plans. So, you know, I, I think that, and I think those two have sort of existed together throughout this time. So I don't know if there's going to be mounting backlash toward toward the mayor, um, although I'm, I'm very curious to see, you know, what, how, what comes of the next election. You also point out that the police department began churning out press releases at a rapid clip following the defunding of the police, following the cuts to the police force for more than the agency had ever sent be- seen before, according to a 2021 analysis by the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont. They were churning these out at an unprecedented rate. These uh, press releases told of gun battles, shootings, assaults, and murders downtown, of gang members taking buses up from Massachusetts, despite the fact that overall violent incidents were lower than in previous years. The local press was happy to parrot these talking points. Weekend shooting incidents in Burlington raise new concerns over police staffing, warned WCAX-TV, the local CBS affiliate, as the station rehashed police tales of crime sprees. Why do you call these police tales of crime sprees? Was there no evidence to back up the fact that these crime sprees were actually happening? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of these cases, you know, and, you know, I, I don't say this to imply that police never fully fabricate um, things sometimes um, and do openly lie. This is something that does happen. But I think in a, a lot of um, crime media, you know, is sort of based on some fundamental facts. You know, I think the crime spree example, someone allegedly, you know, robbed a store in one town and then went to the other and robbed a store. And I, I didn't see any reason. Um, I didn't see any sort of evidence showing that that was, that was false necessarily. But, but I called them tales because I think that the way that these kinds of crimes are presented by police, the language that is used, I mean, even the word sort of crime spree or gun battle, things like that, um, I think are used to craft a certain narrative. And I think that that was done very effectively by the Burlington Police Department um, after it saw some cuts to its officer count. Um, a lot of these crimes had been, you know, would happen in previous years. No one would, the police wouldn't send out press releases. Um, someone would rob a store and, you know, it wouldn't get reported on by the local news because the police wasn't um, putting that out into the world. But as soon as the police started telling these kinds of stories in a more colorful way and doing press outreach, um, there was a lot more, you know, a lot more buzz about these types of crimes. Um, and, and so I think that speaks to the way police are sort of able to create narratives because the press is so used to simply reporting on 
every press release um, that cops send out. You also you mentioned that in its reporting, the Times highlights a supposed epidemic of bike thefts over the last year, profiling a band of neighbors who have gone to sometimes questionable lengths to retrieve stolen goods, vigilante style. Yet the police devotes only one sentence. The piece, sorry, uh, devotes only one sentence to whether there has been a documented increase in bike thefts or whether cops, famously terrible at clearing bike theft cases are any worse now at resolving them. Bike theft, quote, has long been a problem in Burlington, but it seemed to intensify over the summer and into the fall, according to the Times piece. NBC was a little bit more straightforward, pausing for a moment halfway through its feature on Burlington's police to admit sheepishly, quote, it's hard to tell whether crime has risen in Burlington as officers have left the force. And you point out that studying crime data is like staring at an inkblot, an amorphous cloud that can be distorted to fit any narrative. This is its political utility. There is always the specter of increasing crime to be seized upon, and there is always crime going down to be touted as a victory. So if that's the case then, Katya, what can we base the need or lack of need for police upon if the numbers can be made to push any narrative? (laughs) That is is a great question. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we perhaps should not be basing our need for police on the numbers of any particular trend um, in crime. You know, I think I think you can, you know, perhaps more legitimately look at these trends over a period of time. But I mean, there's constant reporting, constant media stories sort of year by year. Oh, murders are up by a few this year. And is this a spike in murders? And, and you know, what is the what police response do we need to address this? Um, you know, I just I, I don't think that that is um, a helpful or evidence based way to look at how we structure public safety. Um, but I think looking at, um, if we're thinking about reducing crime, looking at ways to improve the social safety net and reduce poverty, um, improve, you know, job access, all of these things that are proven to, um, you know, prevent crime in, in the long term, that thinking about those as a way to structure our public safety system, um, you know, is often often perhaps better than looking at sort of momentary crime trends that I just really don't think tell you very much for so many different reasons. Um, I don't think tell you very much about what is what is actually happening in, in a neighborhood or a community. And you, you mentioned the bike recovery Facebook group that attained heroic status in the pages of the New York Times. The group is full not only of posts from residents who have lost their bikes, but of dozens of photos of suspected thieves who are sometimes stopped and interrogated by members of the group according to their own testimonies. A biker balancing several black trash bags full of tin cans to return for pennies at the grocery store. An older black man waiting for the bus with a bike that was suspiciously really nice. A man sleeping on the ground with a gorgeous orange Schwinn beside him. A photo of the bike rack behind a new homeless shelter downtown. Are bike thefts being weaponized by the public in Burlington as an excuse for vigilantism and surveillance of people who they deem to be different, they deem to be the other? Yeah, I mean, I think by some, um, they are. I mean, looking through that that bike group, you know, which I think some many people in that group are, you know, just trying to get their stolen bikes back, which is understandable. But you can see the way um, that this focus on bike crimes um, is used to make anyone walking down the street with a nice bike 
um, who looks poor to people, suddenly suspicious. Um, there's this like sort of deep mistrust that you see throughout this group um, and people feel, and, and real no, no real acknowledgement of the conditions um, that might cause someone to steal a bike, you know, in order to get to work, for instance, and things like that, which is, you know, not to diminish the impact of having one's bike stolen. Um, but, you know, it, it just seems like a problem that is clearly not solved by people going around and posting photos on Facebook of, of people they see with suspicious nice bikes, you know what I mean? And so, and so I think, um, to me, it was very emblematic of, um, you know, sort of the crime, the crime panic, I guess you could say that has uh, um, that we've seen in Burlington over the last few years. And one of the things that they do state is that reports of property crime reached a five year high in 2022, but overall violent crime was at its lowest level in 10 years. So, all right, there's an issue with property crime. Katya, do police stop property crime? Will more police mean less property crime? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is the assumption underlying a lot of this coverage and a lot of our public policy around reducing property crime. I mean, I think often that is it's really not the case. Um, I think, and again, we have to remember that uh, you know, bike thefts is a great example. This is not the type of crime that cops have been very good at solving. Um, you can look at a lot. There's any data on police, you know, clearance rates of bike thefts um, shows that this is you know. Uh, not something that police often prioritize um, or that they're able to solve unless they sort of end up coming across a stolen bike, you know, in the course of other duties. So again, yeah, I think I think it's really important to challenge this assumption that we're taught um, and that runs through a lot of writing and coverage about the police that, you know, they have an, an impact on types of crime like that. That they're that they are connected to these trend lines in the data, and so and so I think that there was some frustration with my article. Someone called me gaslighting for saying, you know, for denying that you know this type of crime was going up in Burlington. And I, I think it's very much possible that some types of property crime have gone up, um, and you know that is, you know, bad for people who've experienced that if it's harmed them. But we have to push back on this idea that the solution to that. Um, is more officers. Or that the anecdotal reporting of crime is a report of crime happening to everyone. You also point out exactly. that there are there, there were at least five homicides in Burlington in 2022, the most in decades, and shootings have become more common. But murders are up across Vermont and indeed across the country. So don't more homicides than Burlington has seen in decades? Uh, doesn't that mean, you know, well, that means more shootings. So doesn't more shootings necessarily mean that more cops are needed? Is there any evidence that suggests that if there are more police, then there will be less murders? And even though it's just five homicides, I mean, it's horrible that five people were killed in a town of 45,000 people, but it's five homicides. So is there any evidence that uh, shows that police will discourage murder? Yeah, I mean, I think my answer to that would be you can look at... um, Murders have increased across the country, as I wrote. Um, murders have increased across Vermont. They've increased, and in, you know, shootings as well, gun violence in general, um, have increased in towns that did not defund their police, um, towns that have increased their police spending, that have added more cops, um, towns that are struggling with police understaffing, 
Um, they've increased in Burlington, but they've actually increased less proportionally in Burlington. And this is shootings, not murders. I'm not sure about the statistics with murders, but you can compare the shootings in Burlington um, and Bennington, a similar, a smaller town um, in southern Vermont um, has seen a far greater increase in shootings, um, and they did not cut their police force at all. So, I mean, I think that with this particular, and I don't want to speak to sort of the impact on of cops on murder generally. I think this is something that people have, you know, there's a lot of whole body of research on this. People come to very different conclusions about it. Um, but I mean, I think in this particular case, to me, I don't see any evidence that the increase in murders in Burlington, which is horrible, that those are people's lives that were lost. But I see no evidence um, that it was connected to, um, you know, having a few dozen fewer officers uh, on the police force. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, you point out that, you know, what has happened is overall police expenses have been restored to pre-2020 levels now. Yet the fear has still remained, the fear that the uh, city council and the mayor, especially the mayor, stoked in Burlington, Vermont, about crime, uh, still saying that the uh, city is doing great economically, there's no problems, tourism should continue, business should continue, uh, we just need more police because of the crime, but that's not having any impact on society. You then quote Mello Grant, a member of Burlington's police uh, commission and a celebrated local hip-hop DJ, telling you recently, I think it's something that they created, this fear, and it got out of control. What do you think happens to a society? What happens to Burlington when they've been put into a unnecessary state of fear? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I feel for the people who it has impacted. Um, I think that it really breeds, um, you know, like, like we were saying about this bike theft Facebook group, this kind of mistrust um, discord within the community where people are now, you know, very much um, suspicious of people panhandling, um, like angry by their presence, things like that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think um, it has, it has bad impacts. Um, and I, it also makes it hard to understand what is, you know, what people's feelings of legitimately feeling unsafe when those are, you know, legitimate for, you know, I think it's understandable that people would be scared by the increase in murders, for instance. Um, but when you also have this narrative that's about property crime and businesses and crime sprees and things like this, and we know that many of those types of crime are not actually increasing, it makes it hard to have a real conversation about what people genuinely need and want um, from their city when it comes to public safety. One last question for you, Katya. We've been speaking with journalist Katya Schwenk, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Crime Wave That Wasn't. Burlington tried defunding the police, then came the backlash. You can find all of Katya's writing at her website, katyashwenk.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at K-T-Y-S-C-H-W-N-K. One last question for you, and I promise we do this with all of our guests, Katya. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or in this case, I think think the audience is going to hate your response. Earlier this week, again, we were speaking with Rachel Garbus about the Stop Cop City Defend Atlanta Forest campaign. We mentioned another conversation we had back in November. 
uh, with uh, historian Austin McCoy, who argues the alliance of local government and the police is unassailable. Austin was making that remark about another progressive town, Ann Arbor, Michigan, following activists' fight for police reforms there, which happened due to the police killing of Ora Rosser. To what degree do you believe that even in Burlington, Vermont, that relationship between city government and police is unassailable? That is, the police-government relationship is unable to be attacked, questioned, or defeated? Is it above criticism from city leaders? And do you think that is the same relationship that the police has with the media, that that is also unassailable? Hmm, I think I think that, you know, yes, it is unassailable. I would say, though, that there are many high-level, high-profile critics um, on the city council of the police department in the police commission. So I, I wouldn't say that it is unassailable in the sense that there is no tension there, that there is no sort of internal discord. Um, but I mean, I think that is a really good way of describing police, police's um, historical relationship with city governments. And I, I think, you know, despite the pushback and despite the, you know, disagreement of some on in Burlington city leadership, um, I do think that you've seen that continue in Burlington. Um, and I think it's a similar, I would have a similar answer about the media where, um, you know, I, I do think there are certainly moments um, and, you know, I've believe this partly as a reporter covering um policing um that there are there is tension there there is this um there is really important pushback that happens within newsrooms and between news or between reporters and the police but I think um perhaps underlying those relationships is this historical understanding of the media treating police departments um as you know they're as you know a go-to source um, that is, you know, not to be questioned about basic facts and things like that. So, so yeah, I, a long, long-winded answer, a long-winded way of saying that I, that I agree with that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Katya, for being on our show. We look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Uh, look for an interview request from me at some point. Uh, I really appreciate you being on. This is a fantastic article, and all of our listeners should definitely check it out. The crime wave that wasn't Burlington tried defunding the police, then came the backlash by Katya Schwenk over at The Baffler. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Katya Schwenk on the crime wave that wasn't, if that made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Subscribe to our Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, where you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and simply clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what culture war battle should this is hell pile on to to get popular? <laughs> Over there at Facebook, SLS says the battle against culture wars. Ah, Sort of recursive. Very meta. Kim G answers, for instant popularity, chant Joe Rogan three times (laughs) while rubbing a bottle of colloidal silver. Colloidal silver. I assume it's something he's promoting. I imagine it is some snake oil of (laughs) some part, some kind. I'm actually waiting for him to actually start selling snake oil. He could do it. You know, (laughs) I heard that there's this thing that uh, parents get from their classroom, you know, when they have kids. It's called panopticon. Oh, yeah. It's like they just tweak our noses, you know? Like, anyway. (laughs) Brayden S. says, this is hell and the woke left want you to believe that you have to wait for traffic stops to stop and look both ways. 
days. Any good Christian American knows that you can simply close your eyes and trust in Jesus <laughs> to guide you safely across eight-lane highways. Yeah, that's what I do with my vision. Trust Jesus. You kind of got to yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Daniel C. says, join the hotly debated War on Groundhog Day. <laughs> That's all for Facebook. Over at Twitter, old friend EatFart69 says, Oh, you're getting into culture war battles? Name three of their songs. <laughs> okay. Laura C. answers, Really, really, really baggy pants. <laughs> and now we've got uh, answers coming in from, pa- from Patreon.com. You can go sign up on Patreon and answer the question from hell. And over there, Adam A., Answers, hashtag no ketchup. I like that. Drifa J says, I'd go with parents' rights to censor kids' exposure to minorities, but on behalf of my roommate, Gin 4 versus Gin 5 ponies. <laughs> Do you know what he's talking about? Yeah, I think or it Jenna? is a My Little Pony thing or some sort of furry thing. I don't know what's going on. It's a My there. Little Pony thing. Yeah, I think it is. Jonathan L., uh, Answers, should you tuck your shirt in or not, which can be confusing sometimes. Uh, Nick E. says, I'm feeling so hopeless that I can't even think of one, but I'm going to keep thinking. And uh, Steve T. finally does just answer furries more boldly. Just, just says furries. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, and uh, we're going to be announcing the winner after Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Dan, again, what is Jeff talking about today? Today? Yeah, today Jeff is going to explore ways to dissolve world leadership. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. On this week's Patreon, uh, while speaking with Lewis R. Gordon earlier this week about his book, Fear of Black Consciousness, I started thinking about other consciousnesses and the possibility that we can embody parts of many different consciousnesses. That made me think about our conversation back in November with Liliana Mason, co-author of Radical American Partisanship on Social Identity, and how that has gotten completely wrapped up in hyper-partisan political identity. I realize consciousness and identity are two different things, but what happens when we become so partisan that it affects our consciousness, the way in which we are aware of the world and how we understand it. All of those thoughts were racing through my head while speaking with Lou, and I'll be trying to wrangle all of them in a monologue I'm doing on Patreon this Thursday that I am calling Fear of a Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Consciousness. And I can tell you by hanging out with that consciousness 24-7 for my entire life, I'm absolutely certain I'm in fear of that consciousness far more than you. Also, every so often on Patreon, I like to go back 10, 15, 20, 25 years to the day and find out what we discussed, when, what kind of dissent we were manufacturing back then. So 20 years ago today, on February 1st, 2003, this is who we had on the show, a show that was abbreviated by Northwestern University Basketball, which is no longer a problem for us due to your support in helping build our studio. On that show, we talked about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. We spoke with some media activists. We had a discussion on Columbia. But what really intrigued me is we spoke with writer Jennifer Berkshire, who covered the previous weekend's World Social Forum in Porto Alegre uh, in Brazil uh, for a counterpunch. For those of you who do not know, the World Social Forum first convened in 2001, so 
so the one you will hear us discussing in a bit is only the, or, you know, t- on uh, Patreon, is only the third annual World Social Forum that took place. The World Social Forum is the annual meeting of civil society organization, which happens during the World Economic Forum in Davos, offering an alternative to the more neoliberal, neoconservative, fascist view on globalization. Many credit it with inspiring the pink tide of leftist governments in opposition to U.S. neoliberal policy in Latin America during the 2000s. But the only way you can hear, uh, you can fear me in my consciousness and hear a 20-year-old conversation about the beginning of a revolution, which still inspires today, the only way you can do that is by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. Dissolving Leadership I'm coming to you today from the shipyard in Popham, Maine, where dry dock professionals are currently refitting the fishing trawler, the SS Merkin, to be airlifted for use by the Ukrainian Navy should the hostilities become pelagically noir, or whatever, move into the Black Sea, somehow. Must there be nations? Well, whether or not there must be, there are. Must a nation have a leader? Well, most do. Must the leader be wealthy? Well, most are. If there must be nations, and if a nation must have a leader, and if a leader must be wealthy, maybe they shouldn't be the wealthiest person in the nation. And maybe the wealthiest person in the nation, leader or not, shouldn't be wealthier than the nation itself, or be able to leverage their wealth to determine national policies, just as a rule of thumb. There are a lot of things wrong with the way wealth is distributed, especially now. And there are a lot of things wrong currently with the leadership of nations. It's hard to imagine that the two problems aren't somehow related. Economic wealth and political power both give the bearer delusions of great strength beyond their actual physical abilities. They become so used to getting what they want, it's only natural that many of them tend to esteem themselves superhuman. The opposite is also true, however. The uber-privileged are also prone to indulge delusions of fragility. King Charles VI of France famously believed he was made of glass and took elaborate precautions to avoid accidentally shattering. Napoleon is said to have been afraid of cats, and this fear is also said, by me, to have stemmed from the worry that he might step on their tails and be visited by them in the night, where they would steal his breath in revenge. Emperor Augustus Caesar was under the delusion that he contained a highly conductive fluid that would attract a fatal lightning strike. Genghis Khan was irrationally fearful of being eaten by dogs, even small fluffy ones. The celebrated novelist Balzac had a fear of burning up in the sunlight, as did the Count of Dracula. Two moderately old sayings should be kept in mind, though. Number one, the rich are different. Number two, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. The wealthy and powerful are physiologically different from the rest of us losers. Based on a peer-reviewed study by Professor Joseph Rogan, reviewed by his peers Chuck Norris and Randy Quaid. 
Everyone thought tycoon Howard Hughes was paranoid. He saved his fingernail clippings so no one would clone him. He was afraid to cut his hair or take a shower. Finally, while out wandering in the desert, failing to find a cave to be a hermit in, he was befriended by a Mormon named Melvin. Melvin the Mormon, he was called, who convinced him to make himself presentable. The first step was to take a bath and get all that encrusted dirt cleaned off. However, no sooner had Howard settled comfortably into the warm tub than he began to experience disintegration. The dirt came away from his skin, of course, but it seemed the dirt was the only thing holding him together. Within less than a minute, wealthy industrialist Howard Hughes had completely dissolved, leaving only a fragrance like an armpit-scented bath bomb. Another Mormon-related death, as the proverb has it. Yes, the rich and powerful dissolve in water. When's the last time you saw Victor Orban swimming? Laurent Gbagbo, once and perhaps future president of the Republic of Côte d'Ivoire, is another notable case. The man who currently calls himself Long Gbagbo is an imposter, a double, possibly a hastily prepared clone put forward by the African People's Party. The real Gbagbo was dissolved sometime four years ago. Laurent Gbagbo was of the Bete people. Noted racist and beloved anti-Semitic children's author Roald Dahl based the Oompa Loompas on them, even possibly on Gbagbo himself. In original editions of the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, unlike in the movie, the Oompa Loompas are portrayed by illustrator Joseph Schindelman as diminutive black Africans. They wear animal skin mini togas, even in the Chocolate Factory, where they live and work like happy little slaves. Originally, Wonka discovered them in the deepest, darkest part of the African jungle, where no white man had ever been before. Loompaland was impoverished and plagued by monsters such as the Horn Snozzler and the Vermicious Knid, whose favorite food was the Oompa Loompa. Wonka offered them a life of blissful servitude in his factory. In exchange, they could have all the cocoa beans they wanted, since above all food, that was what they adored. With stylish ambiguity, it's even a little bit unclear whether the Oompa Loompas weren't composed partially or entirely of chocolate in some magical childhood way. In 2018, Laurent Bagbo was acquitted of crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court. The knowledge that he was actually guilty, however, weighed on his conscience. One night in Brussels, ostensibly awaiting an okay from Côte d'Ivoire's current president to return to his home country, Bagbo drew a hot bath, something unusual for him, like most of the world's elite, he could afford to be dry-cleaned. One of his bodyguards found him there, having been brewed into an entire tub full of Swiss miss. Not realizing the identity of the hot cocoa, however, Bagbo's entire security entourage enthusiastically drank mug after mug of the former president with mini marshmallows. It was only when they had finished enjoying their beverage that they noticed articles of his clothing in a pile on the floor where he left them beside his suicide note and realized in horror what they'd done. And if you judge it racist to posit that the leader of an African nation was made of chocolate, remember, you are thereby also accusing Joe Rogan and Roald Dahl, two noted scholars in the field of ethnic characteristics. Emperor Ludwig 
Louis XVI, Tsars Mikhail, Alexis, three Dimitris, and most likely a majority of the others dissolved in their bathing vessels like sugar in tea, as did Queen Elizabeth recently. Don't tell me you believe what the mainstream media tells you, as well as numerous other nobles and royals in the ranks of Lord, Baron, Emperor, King, Queen, Daimyo, Puba, Raja, Maharaja, Sultan, Senator, Wicked Witch, and a now-extinct marsupial called a wongwazel. Yes, that's their dirty secret. The rich are water-soluble. And that's how we can fight them. We can fight both the ruling class and their machines the same way. Throw water on them. Why else would they be trying to buy up all the water? Yes, of course, to sell it back to us at a profit. That's how it'll start. But they'll eventually price it so high we won't be able to afford it. It's just another way they calculate to thwart our revolution. Their greatest fear among their long litany of rational and irrational fears is that we'll come to our senses and dethrone them into the drink. And that's the super truth as I understand it. And this has been the moment of truth. Good day. All right, Jeffy, we're up against the clock. Great to hear your voice. What clock? A wonderful what clock? moment of truth. Well, hey, hey, I want to give a shout out to somebody though. Okay. Whoever in the, whoever answered the question from hell saying they read something on Super Truth Social. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. That was uh, my winner. That was from Mark A. And I'll make sure that the next time that you are in town, you will meet Mark because he's a really great person and hangs out with us during office hours. Groove it. All right, Jeff. Until, Ciao. Till next time. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, good. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and do we have any more answers from our listeners? This week's question from Hell is what culture war battle should this is Hell pile onto to get popular? We have. One response in Under the Wire from Andrew S., who answers, make cartoon advertising mascots sexy again. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Yeah, the green M&M. That is pretty good. Catching, catching someone's Andrew eye. S., Under the Wire, with yeah. a good one. Uh, I also liked Adam A., hashtag no ketchup. Jonathan I. saying, should you tuck in your shirt or not? Steve saying, furries. Jamie Zyklon gas stoves. Braden saying, this is hell and the woke left want you to believe that you have to wait for traffic stops and look both ways. Any good Christian American knows you can simply close your eyes and trust Jesus. Uh, Kim G saying, for instant popularity, chant Joe Rogan three times while rubbing a bottle of colloidal silver. SLS, the battle against culture wars. And Paolo Sorbello, who said, bidet versus <laughs> what's a bidet, which is a great culture War. So, uh, any choices in there, Dan? Anything you liked in particular? Yeah, this morning looking at it, I like that bidet one. Yeah, I do too. So, yeah. Paolo, you are the winner of this week's question from Al. Just send us your mailing address and we'll put whatever piece of merchandise you want in the mail for you. Congratulations. I just hope you're still not in Kazakhstan because the <laughs> cost for mailing something to Kazakhstan is very expensive. Uh, so, the answer to the, this week's question from Hal from me uh, what culture war battle should the, the, the This Is Hell pile on? to get more popular, I'm going with nothing from my childhood should ever change. And if it ever does, I will be so affronted that my childhood, everyone's childhood is changing. Everything needs to be exactly like it was when I was a kid, or I'm going to scream and scream and scream until I get my way. 
Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, our upcoming schedule is a little weird, but who do we have confirmed as our first guest next week? Next week, the first guest will be Sheila Liming, author of Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, <laughs> makes an intelligent case for the importance of this most casual or yeah, casual social structures and shows us how just getting together can be a potent act of resistance all on its own. Sheila is an associate professor at Champlain College, coincidentally, in Burlington, Vermont. Also, I thought that was said causal there for a second. Yeah, so, yeah. You, heard, you, you heard the gears grinding. Yeah, but I saw the same thing <laughs> for some weird reason. Our, our, so we are still waiting to hear back from someone about Tuesday, but if it is the guest we are hoping to have on, our talk will be about the pursuit of happiness in the United States makes us violence and not only here in the United States but we export that violence all over the world and uh, so our Wednesday guest asked us to move to Thursday and we're accommodating them it's a very wacky week. So, Dan, who is our other guest that we have confirmed for next right. week? Right. On that wacky Thursday, we'll have human rights attorney Nora Erekat, who wrote the Boston Review article, Designing the Future in Palestine. Palestinian women and feminist organizations are reimagining what liberation can look like beyond national independence. Nora is an associate professor at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, in the Department of Africana Studies and the Program in Criminal Justice and author of Justice for Some, Law, and in the Question of Palestine. And, you know, that's why we, uh, yeah, I didn't get that title either. That's a weird subtitle. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's why we wanted to move around so much, because we've been trying to get Nora on the show for years now. So we're very happy to have her on next week. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsay Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth, Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History, and to R- Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, and Sebastian Vupper, just because Sebastian should be returning next week with another past inside the present. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when I will put you in fear of my bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth consciousness and we will be sharing a report from 20 years ago at the third ever world social forum i hope you can join me tonight and members of the this is hell crew and other this is hell listeners for office hours this is hell office hours our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think at carrie's lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which uh, has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time beginning around 6 and going until about 10. It's over here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. If you drop by, I'll give you a book. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>